1924, there were two men named Richard Loeb and Nathan Leopold. These two men had vile hearts. They wanted to murder a 14-year-old boy, and they did so because they wanted to be famous, and they thought they could get away with it. They were unlovely. They were evil and vile, and they went to court. They thought they could get away with it, but the authorities found evidence. It was clear that they were guilty, and they deserved the death penalty. Indeed, the prosecutor looked and sought the death penalty so that they could be punished for this wicked deed that they had done. In stepped Clarence Darrow, who was their defense attorney, and was passionately against the death penalty as a punishment. And so for 12 hours, he made a plea with the judge to have leniency and mercy. His words are considered some of the greatest defense work in the legal history of this country. He said things like, Your Honor, be merciful to them, but not... It would be merciful to them to sentence them to death, but not merciful to civilization. Not merciful if you tied a rope around their necks and let them die. Merciful to them, but not merciful to civilization. And not merciful to those who would be left behind. These artful words did their work. The judge relented and simply sentenced them to prison. You see, what these two men needed in their evilness and their vileness was a mediator. Someone who could step in the gap between them and righteous judgment and make a case for mercy. Not because they deserved it, but for the sake of mercy itself. The Israelites, the Israelites that we've been walking through the book of Exodus with today, are in the same position. Same position after the golden calf. They need a mediator. As Pastor Bill preached last week, they are guilty and without recourse. Their rebellion was born out of an impatience and a forgetting of who God was and what he had done for them. came out of a place of fear and a desire to make their own way to God, and so they made a golden calf. This is a rebellion of, against God because they approached God in a way that was not authorized by God. They tried to make God and his faithful uh, exercise of religion to him, they tried to make that their way, in their own image, the way that they wanted to do it. And as rebelliousness does, so often rebelliousness in one area leads to a rebelliousness in another area, as they rose up to play, as the text says, which is an allusion to sexual immorality. And so, in this state, the Israelites are in trouble. They need someone to mediate for them. Chapters 33 and 34 are kind of the second and third acts of the story we've been going through since last week. Bill started with rebellion, the rebellion of the Israelites. And today, we're going to look at mediation and restoration. So that the, the Israelites rebelled. Today, we're going to see mediation on behalf of the Israelites and then a restoration to their relationship with God. And so this narrative, this story that we're in today, shows us today our own need of a mediator. And God provides that mediator. God provides a mediator for his people. And that's what I intend to argue today. Our main point, if you will, is that God provides a mediator for his people. God provides a mediator for his people. 
And then we see four scenes in the text here. It's a, it's a, a neat story, right? It's, it's in component parts. First, that sin separates us from God. Second, the Lord sends a mediator. Third, the Lord renews his covenant. And finally, Moses shows and also hides the Lord's glory. So this sermon is largely about the fact that God provides a mediator for his people. What do they need mediation for? Well, it's, it's sin. That's for this first section. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. And we see this in Exodus 33, verses 1 through 6, which says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land in which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. But I will not go up with you. The author calls this a disastrous word. The Lord will still give the Israelites the promised land, but in light of their rebellion against him, he's not going to go with them. Even the Lord's tone has shifted here. Previously we heard, you will be my people and I will be your God. But now he says to Moses, the people who you brought, not my people, those people, something has been fractured. He calls them stiff-necked. They're rebellious and they're stubborn in that rebellion. And so God is beginning to sever the relationship with his covenant people of Israel. And there's a sense which the rebellion of Israel is even greater than that of the pagan states around them because God showed himself to them and entered into a relationship with them. These are the very same people that were led out of Egypt and into the wilderness where the Lord provided. And still, they rebel against his word. They turn to their own sin. And in part, the reason that the Lord won't go up with them is actually a protective measure. He tells them this, in my holiness, if I go up with you while you're in this unmediated, sinful state, I will consume you. Because God is holy, and his holiness cannot abide to be in the presence of <coughs> sinful people. It's not safe. Not safe for the Lord to go with them. And so the Israelites immediately know how devastating this is. And this is to their credit. The author says it's a devastating word, a disastrous word. And they go into mourning. They lament. They know that this is serious, that they've lost something. But I think it's fair to ask of the text and of ourselves, well, 
Why? Why is this so bad? They still get the promised land. They're going to go into a land flowing with milk and honey. They will still get that blessing. They'll get their, their needs taken care of. It's a rich land. Ostensibly, you would assume that they're going to be prosperous in that land. And it's, it's not just the land for them. It's the land for their children as well. So there's material provision for the people and for the coming generations. That's, in some ways, the American dream, is it not? My needs will be taken care of. My kids will be taken care of. So why is this so disastrous? It's because they don't get God. And the people of God knows what that means. You see, these are the same people that walked through the Red Sea with walls of water on either side. These are the same people who are fed in the desert for provision from heaven. These are the same people who were delivered from Egypt through the works of, of majesty and sovereignty that can't be comprehended in human terms. They, terms. they have seen what the Lord is capable of and who he is and how he's delivered them. And so they know what they've lost through their sin. They've lost this, this being of God's people. They've lost this intimacy with him. They've lost that special designation. This is an echo of what we see in the garden, right? Adam and Eve used to be in the garden and they walked with God and they talked with God. And they're, while the garden, I'm sure, was lovely and beautiful and amazing to live in, when they're cast out of Eden, what they lose is the presence of God. They lose their ability to walk with Him in unmediated relationship. That's the cost of their sin. And the Israelites are facing this same lostness, this this losing of a nearness to God, something they had tasted that is now removed because of their sin. This is the cost of their sin. It's, it's what they've done to themselves. And it's not even safe because the Lord would consume them in his holiness. Now, people who don't know the Lord or his goodness might not understand this, right? There's plenty of people we would know that would gladly take the blessing. There's plenty of people who would gladly take the provision without the provider. A life of ease and comfort. But getting God's stuff without God is a bad trade. It won't solve our ultimate needs. It won't deliver us from death. That's why taking God's stuff without him is not something we should be interested in. And again, the Israelites, to, this, to their credit, at some level get this. They mourn. And they put their ornaments away. And they strip them off as God commands them to. This is the state of Israel. They've rebelled. Sin has separated them from God. They are in a place where they can't reach back to him. They can't fix what's been done. They can't repair what's broken. And that's where we are. They need Immediately. We next come to a, a section of text that seems oddly placed. This is verses 7 through 11. But it's not random. It's there intentionally. It's a description of Moses in the tent of meeting. And this is what the text says. And remember, it's here to show us something about Israel's relationship with God at that time. This is what it says. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp 
far off from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the Tent of Meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went up to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into his camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. You see, this is reflective of the fact that Israel needs Moses to be the go-between between them and God. God is not among them in the camp. He's far off. He's a distance away. It's, it's a physical representation of the separation that's happened. People can't dwell with God, and God can't dwell among them because of their sin. Only Moses can be the go-between. Only Moses can talk to God face-to-face -face as a friend. And even when Joshua is not there, Joshua, uh, even when Moses is not there, Joshua stays in the tent. Why? So nobody else goes in there. It's not safe for them. It's not their role. That is the meeting tent for Moses and no one else. So why is this short interlude here? Just to show, again, that we emphasize the point that Israel needs someone to be the go-between, the mediator between God and his people. But God is merciful, and so he sends a mediator. That's our second point here. The Lord sends a mediator. We see this in chapter 33, verse 12 through 34, verse 9. It says this. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. But how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You see, Moses is stepping into the gap between Israel and God here. He knows that Israel needs mediation, and so he attempts to do so. And it, it begs the question, how does one mediate with the sovereign king of the universe? 
This, this God is perfectly just and perfectly good and perfectly in control. You're not going to argue him into anything. You're not going to be more, you can't bully him. You have no leverage in any way, shape, or form. You are a creature that he's made, and he's shown you his power. How do you mediate with a God like that? Moses does it by speaking God's own words and promises back to him. Moses' work as a mediator is not at all based on his own worthiness or some intellectual argument or anything to do with him, but rather on God's promises and God's character. Moses says, God, you said these are your people, not those people. God, you said that I found favor, but the only favor worth having is your presence. God, you said that we would be a distinct people, to show the rest of the world your glory and your holiness, that we'd be a nation of priests testifying to who you are throughout the entire world. We can't do that if we're not your people. This is how Moses mediates. He reminds the Lord of what the Lord has said. And the Lord accepts this as mediation. He will go with Israel. He relents. He hears Moses' prayer, and he accepts that this mediation is acceptable, and he will relate to Israel as his people once again. So I think a clear application for God's people here is for us, when we go in prayer to God, to pray God's promises back to him. There's a variety of ways to do this. I think of the story, there's a pastor who used to be in Nashville named Ray Ortland. And once upon a time in 2007, his church, part of his church, made it their mission that he would no longer be their pastor. If anyone has ever been through church fights and church splits, that is ugly and painful. And they succeeded. The Orleans were removed from the pastor in that place. And that was painful and devastating for them. They struggled with where was God in that. So they got advice from a friend. But basically said to them, Ray, Janie, his wife, you're suffering. And that suffering is not going to end anytime soon. So what you need to do, or what I encourage you to do, is to find a promise of God in the scriptures and cling to it. And so they did. They clung to 1 Peter 5.10, which says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. And so in the midst of their suffering, they pray to God, God, we're suffering. You promised that after a little while, you would restore us. That you would confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Please do it. And if you don't do it in this life, we know that you'll do it in the next. And this is what the Lord used to comfort them and pull them through difficulty. Because it reminds them of God's promises and that God always keeps his promises. Another set of verse that I think is right and good for us to pray in the midst of difficulty is Isaiah 41.10, which says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. You see, when we're hurting, it is right and good for us to go to God and say, I need help, and you promised to help me. Do so. And the Lord has to keep his promises. That's who he is. 
That's what he'll do. He will help his people. If we find ourselves in a situation similar to the Israelites, where we are guilty of sin, we've broken something, we can't fix it, there's nothing we can do to make atonement for the sin that we've committed, which we've all done. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or unrighteousness. So when we find ourselves trapped in sin and suffering and realizing there's nothing I can do to bridge the gap between myself and God, we remember that through Christ, as his people, he promises to forgive our sins if we confess them. So Lord, I confess that I've sinned in this way. The blood of Jesus covers that and you promise to forgive me. Please do so. Let me know your forgiveness. What Moses has demonstrated here for us is a way for us to call on the Lord to keep his promises and know that the Lord will, because he always does. There's a theological point here, too, that I think is important to pull out and worth discussing. It's a simple question. Does God change? Does he change his mind? Does he change here? There's a, a doctrine of God that says God doesn't change. It's called immutability. Fancy word. Don't, it doesn't matter if you remember. But basically the Lord doesn't change. But wait a minute. Here, God was not going to go with them. And now he is going to go with them. Okay, well, Ben, you just told me that God doesn't change. Resolve that. You see, God does all things well. Which means he relates to his people rightly at all times. So when Israel was in their sin with no mediation... He relates rightly to them by saying, I'm not going to go up with you. But after Moses mediates, and the Lord accepts that as legitimate mediation, he rightly relates to his people and restores fellowship and says, now I will go up with you. You see, the Israelites' sin had been mediated, and so God responds rightly to them in that position. It's not that the Lord changes, but rather that he always relates rightly to his people. God's Lack of it, the fact that he doesn't change, that there's no variance in him, doesn't mean he does the same thing every time, all the time, in the same way. Rather, he acts in perfect consistency with his character at all times, in all places, in all ways. And you see, the Lord knew that Israel would need mediation. He knew this all the way back in Exodus 3. This very person who's working to mediate for him, this is Moses. The same Moses who didn't want to go. He said, please, send anybody else. I can't talk good. I'm nobody. They're not going to listen to me. But God knew what he was doing. He sent Israel a mediator to lead them. So even though, even though Moses is the agent of mediation, it's the Lord that provides it. It's the Lord that sent Moses to rescue the people. This is, you know, Moses, to Moses' credit, he's, he's held in high esteem in the Old Testament as he should be. He talked face-to-face -face with God as a friend, the scriptures say. It's clearly a, an elevated position for Moses. But all of that comes from God. It's nothing about Moses that's special. It's rather that God has provided him to Israel as a mediator. And we see in the next section of text that Moses is so favored by God, he's given a glimpse of God's glory. Moses says, show me your glory. I actually, I wonder if he knew what God was going to do next. I somewhat assume that he thinks, show me your glory. 
through the Israelites, through taking us to the promised land, through making us a kingdom of priesthood. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe he did know what was coming. Or maybe he had a glimpse of, of perhaps what was going to happen. But what the Lord does, which gives evidence of him accepting Moses as a mediator, is he, he actually agrees to show Moses some tiny fragment aspect of his glory. He hides him in the rock and he, he walks by. This, this demonstrates that God has accepted Moses as mediator. And then, in chapter 34, verses 1 through 9, we see further evidence of this. The Ten Commandments are written again. The Lord appears to Moses as he said, as he agreed to do, as he said he would do, and he declares who he is. Merciful. But even here, Moses continues to serve his part as mediator well. He says, he says, he never denies Israel guilt, Israel's guilt. He says, we are, we are a sinful people. We are full of iniquity. We need pardon. He doesn't try to explain away Israel's guilt. He doesn't try to minimize it. He fully and completely throws himself on the mercy of God. So we see that the Lord sent Moses as a mediator who intervened on behalf of Israel so they might remain the Lord's people. And the result of this is that the Lord renews his covenant. This is chapter, this is our next point, it's chapter 34, 10 through 28. I'm not going to read the entire section, but I'll read a, a couple of verses. Exodus 34, 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. For all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And at the end of this section, verses 27 and 28, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now this covenant, if we were to read through it, if you go back earlier in Exodus, it's all very familiar. You see, the Lord will bless Israel with the promised land and provision and protect them from enemies, drive them out, while Israel must remain faithful, demolish false worship, and remember what the Lord has done in honoring him. This is the, the gist of the, the covenant renewal. It's also a restoration of the relationship. You see, it's, the relationship has been restored. There's no change in the covenant. It's not like, hey, you, you, you blew it, and so... You know, now that you've been mediated, yeah, it's been mediated, but we're going to change the covenant a little. No. Covenant is renewed. So the relationship with God and Israel is restored. And this covenant renewal testifies to what the Lord said about himself. The Lord says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So his renewal of the covenant shows his mercy. He's not going to hold the Israelites' sin against them. He's going to renew the covenant. And this time, as Moses is on the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights, Israel waits. They don't fall into the same sin. They don't pursue idolatry, at least not yet. God is, Israel is right again with God. If you know your Bible, you know that that doesn't last long. 
But for us, as we think how to apply this covenant renewal, it's very simple. We ought to trust the Lord. He's the only thing worthy of trust. He keeps his promises. And if we repent and turn to the Lord, he doesn't hold our sins against us. Because when he looks at us, he doesn't see our lack of righteousness. He sees Christ's righteousness in our stead. And as we walk through this narrative, this story, we've seen kind of three clean beats, right? Israel falls into rebellion. Moses mediates. The relationship is restored. Rebellion, mediation, restoration. But there's something left. There's a curious postscript to this story. The main beats of the story are over, but this last scene might seem oddly placed, but they're there to drive home a message that this story in Exodus points to a far greater story of redemption. So let's examine that Moses shows and hides the Lord's glory. Chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. They were, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses. But the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. You see, the reflection of God's glory is apparent on Moses' face, and it's so intense that the Israelites are afraid. Literally, at the, at the beginning of this, they run, and Moses is like, whoa, whoa, come back, come talk to me. They're that afraid, which ought to give us some inkling of how unbecome we, we become when we see the glory of God. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I have seen the glory of the Lord, and I'm a man of unclean lips, but I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. It, it undoes us when we see the glory of God. This isn't even the glory of God. This is the, 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 the after image of God's glory on Moses' face that his, the Israelites see, and they're afraid. They don't even want to be near him. This should give us some picture of how intense the glory of God is. It provokes fear of the Israelites. They're not united with God. He may be among them, but they flee his glory, his presence. Part of this is because the Holy Spirit hasn't indwelled them yet. You see, brothers and sisters, what happens when we become a Christian is that God doesn't just come to live among us. He comes to live in us. And it's through Christ's sacrifice on the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're united to Christ. And then we can start to look on the Lord. In, in eternity, we'll look on the Lord with unveiled face because of his redemption of us. Israelites can't even look on the reflection of a glimpse of some measure of God's glory, but the Christian will look on Jesus' face fully 
and forever in eternity. You see, the Israelites are afraid of Moses' face because he's reflecting God's glory. And then he veils his face. And you might think this is a favor to Israel. Okay, we're, you're uncomfortable with how like, intense this is. I'm going to veil my face. But it's actually a measure of judgment. 2 Corinthians 3 unpacks this curious tale for us. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 16 says now, and this was read earlier, now if the ministry of death, the old covenant, the law, it's, the law isn't bad, it's not flawed, rather it's to show us our need for a Savior. So it's the ministry of death because it shows us without a Savior, without somebody mediating for us, we're going to die. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. So if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Yeah, Moses veils his face because the Israelites cannot bear to look at it. They're being robbed of the chance to see God's glory. And Moses, since Paul says he was not very bold, must have just adjusted himself to the Israelites' presence and said, okay, I'm going to make you comfortable. So instead of showing them this reflection of God's glory at all times, he assents to what their desire is. And so by the Israelites face some measure of judgment. They're robbed of the ability to see God's reflected glory. And so we have to consider what we've been saying about Moses. In this passage, in these sections of Scripture, we've, he's basically been the man. He's been the mediator. He's been the agent that God has used to mediate between himself and God. He even offers his own life as atonement. But God doesn't take his life. He doesn't accept that as something that would cover God's sin. Because there's something else that God will accept. And it's his own promise, his own plan, his own atonement, which is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ. It's often been said that Jesus is the greater Moses, and that's true. Hebrews 3.3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. You see, as much as, as honorable and as wonderfully used by God as Moses is in this section, he's as much a part of the house as we are. It's God who builds the house. Moses is a brick, just like me, just like you. It wasn't that long ago that Moses was arguing with God. It's not that long ago that Moses murdered a guy in cold blood. He, too, needs atonement. He, too, needs somebody to mediate on his behalf. His life, if he gave it, couldn't redeem the Israelites. But God accepts his mediation anyway. Why? Well, we said that it's because Moses reflects the promises of God back to him, and that's true. But it's also because God knows a greater mediator is coming. 
It's himself in the form of a baby in a manger who is nailed to a cross, spilling perfect, innocent blood to cover not only the Israelites, but any who would turn to Christ, any who would call on the name of Jesus and turn from their sins and believe. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says it, says it this way. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. I'll skip the rest. But this plan, this promise is a plan that God had made before the foundation of the earth to redeem a people to himself through Christ. God accepts Moses' mediation plan because he already had a greater redemption plan coming in the person of Jesus. There's a children's storybook Bible, it's literally the, the storybook Bible, um, which we read to our kids all the time, have been for, for eight years. And at the beginning of that book, it says, every story whispers his name. And that's true. But this text shouts the name of Jesus Christ and the truth of his gospel. There are sections of the Old Testament where it can be a little tough to point to Jesus. But here, is this is not one of them. You see, church, we are the vile and helpless Israelites desperate to make a religion and a God in our own making. We need mediation. We seek safety in the numbers on a screen from our bank account and value from worldly pleasures that don't last. We rebel, we play. And this narrative happens every day, even for Christians. We rebel every day, and every day we can go to Christ to mediate for us. This is why Moses can't be the perfect mediator, because he's dead. But Christ lives by the Father's side, advocating for his people. And so for those that don't believe in Christ, you stand in unmediated guilt. But this is the good news. There is no cost. There is no barrier to you throwing yourself on the righteous mercy of Christ and saying, advocate for me, cover me, atone for me. I repent, I believe. The world may bless the unbeliever with certain joys and comforts in this life, but God's presence won't be there. You'll have provision without the provider. Don't settle for that. Seek Christ. I began this sermon talking about Clarence Darrow, the attorney, and his effective mediation for those two horrible young men who murdered a young boy. He saved their lives from the death penalty, but they still paid the price. They went to jail for a long time. One was murdered in jail. But you see, they needed a better mediator than Clarence Darrow. They needed Jesus, who's a mediator who not only spares life, but he pays the price with his own blood, and own blood, and, and thus not only could the two murderers be forgiven, but justice is done in such a way that the pain and suffering that the family of the lost boy suffered can be paid for. That loss is atoned for. They can find hope in Christ again. Only Jesus can enter that courtroom, free the murderers, comfort the bereaved, and pay for the weight of sin for everyone in that room. Only Jesus can do that. Only that, that type of mediation is only found in him. It's only in Christ that our, true, our sins can truly and completely be mediated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for sending Christ who loved us enough to die in our place to take away our sins. Yeah, you are God who keeps his promises. 
who loves us, who redeems the people unto yourself. And so we are grateful. Help us to remember that day by day. Help us to remember what Christ has done on our behalf. And when we stumble, let us stumble as a people who are not without hope, but rather have the glorious good news that Jesus loved us enough to lift us up and not just dust us off, but make us clean, as clean as he is. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.